Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Father, we ask that you would grant us wisdom and understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. Anoint and bless us, Lord, that we might come to understand this in light of our day. And truly, Lord, give us light so that we might have it illuminated not only upon your word, but upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Kind of interesting little passage here to read. If we haven't connected this back to chapter 49. But it's become somewhat of the world's obsessive pastime, I should say. To blame the God they, for the most part, do not believe in, but to blame uh, on God everything bad that happens on the planet. You ever thought about that? Those people who say, you know, well, there's no God, you know, they blame God for what takes place. God is to be blamed for all the natural catastrophes that have occurred. Just ask insurance agents who can show you the act of God clauses in their policies. People blame God for every mistake and wickedness that man perpetuates on others. It's God's fault. And while we should expect this kind of attitude and approach by the world, the same attitude exists many times with those who should know better, God's people. You see, these verses here that we've just read and those to follow, These verses are loosely connected with a previous passage dealing with Zion and the children of Zion, which is Israel, and in particular Judah, the southern kingdom. Zion being Jerusalem, but the mother, as described in the first part of verse 1, when the Lord says, where's the certificate of your mother's divorce? whom I have put away. And so, it's dealing not only with Zion and with the children of Zion and, and the doubts that, they've, that they have as to God's care for them, which takes us back, as, as it were, to verse 14 of the previous chapter. Just go back a page there and, and you'll see in verse 14 where Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. And my Lord has forgotten me. And so in effect, the idea here is that they were blaming God for divorcing them and cutting them off. See, God's not done dealing with them. You know, God said some beautiful things to them. 
I mean, they were blaming God for selling them into slavery to pay off a debt. And of course, we know that God had not forsaken them or forgotten them because of those beautiful things that He said in verses 15 and 16. When He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and, and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I always see you. I always care for you. God has said that. And sometimes we think that's all that God has to say. But the Lord continues to confront them directly with very pointed questions about their attitude toward God, about their saying that God has forsaken God has forgotten. In essence, God is being blamed for their troubles and their trials. So God comes with these kind of questions, and I say these in effect. uh, He's saying to them, are you saying, I don't care about you anymore? You're saying, I divorced you. Well, where's the document, you see? You're saying, I divorced you. Where's the document of divorce? Can you produce it? Is there one? You know, it was God who laid down the law of divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're not going to go back there. You can read that later yourself. And it's interesting that at some point in time, God actually did divorce Himself from the northern kingdom of of Israel. You can read that in in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8. But here He's asking the southern kingdom, of Israel, of Judah, I should say. Where's the certificate of divorce? You're saying I cut you off. Now, you say I sold you into slavery to pay a debt. Well, can you tell me to whom I sold you? Tell me who it is. The bottom line is that I did not move away from you. You moved away from me. It was because of your sins that you sold yourselves. It's your fault and no one else's. That is, in effect, what God is saying to His people. You see, they had sold themselves into slavery, and the same can be true today. The same can be true today. God does not move away from us, we move away from Him by our sins. A good example of this is found in 2 Chronicles. I want you to turn there, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Because I want you to see this attitude. I want you to see this idea. Where as as long as we are keeping our focus upon the Lord, as long as, as we're trusting on the Lord, the Lord is there. And so this good, this good example here that we have in 2 Chronicles has to do uh, when Asa the king, or Asa, was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Ethiopian army with over a million men was coming against this young king. And this young king cries out to the Lord. Second Chronicles 14 verse 11. And, so, and Asa cried out to the Lord his God. And he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. Listen, you got to understand, the armies of Judah were not as powerful, were not as big as the Ethiopian army at this time. Because Ethiopia was connected in very much with Egypt, and so they had a million people in their army, the text tells us. 300 chariots of iron. 
And so his prayer to God is this, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power, help us, O Lord, our God. For we rest on you and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. That is a tremendous prayer. A tremendous prayer of a young man trusting in God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, with all of his strength. And saying, we have nothing but you, Lord God, and we're your people. And this army is coming against us, but in effect, he's coming against, they're coming against you. Lord, you stand and be our strength. And the Lord gave them a victory, a great victory over the Ethiopians. And on their return from battle, as they're coming back from battle, Azza was met by a man named Azariah. And we're told in the scriptures... In the next chapter, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Azza. And he said to him, Hear me, Azza, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. Look carefully at what it says. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Many years later, when the northern kingdom of Israel, because there was a divided kingdom, and they weren't, uh, (laughs) they were brothers, but they weren't friends. When the northern kingdom of Israel was causing trouble for Judah, Azza, instead of trusting in the Lord as he did when he was younger, turned to King Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to aid him in this matter. He makes an alliance with, with the pagans of that day, the Syrians. And you know what happens? The plan that they had actually worked in putting Israel in check. But it would be costly for Azza and for Judah. For if you go to the next chapter, Second Chronicles 16, and you look at verse 7 and following, it says, And at that time, Hanani the seer came to Azza, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. You see, Syria was not their f- true friend. Syria was their enemy, and the enemy of their God. And so he says, you have not relied on the Lord, and because of this, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, referring back to the battle where God helped them and saved them? Yet because you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. Notice what this prophet says to Azza. He says, In this you have done foolishly. Therefore from now on you shall have wars. And from that point on, Judah was involved in all kinds of battles, all kinds of skirmishes. There was no peace, in other words, you see. That's the, that's the statement being given. No peace. From now on you shall have wars. 
So what does Asa do? Look at verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer. He was angry with Hanani for coming and telling him this. And what does he do? He puts him in prison. For he was enraged at him because of this. And, and, Asa was, and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. He lost it with the Lord. You'll notice that God didn't turn from Asa. But Asa turned from God. Do you, do you see now the connection here? You see what we're dealing with in Isaiah 50. And what was the end result, by the way, with Azza and Judah? Second Chronicles 16, if you just look at verse 12 now, it says, And in the 39th year of his reign, Azza became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. And yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. By the way, let me remind you that the beginning of, of what we find out about Azza in, in, in chapter 14 is that, that he was a good king. He began as a good king, but he did not end well. You see, he sought not the Lord, but the physicians. And so, verse 13 says, Azza rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. Two years of suffering, a severe malady, because he did not seek the Lord. He sought others. He did not end well. The Lord desires that we would end well by trusting in Him. By not putting our trust in others and putting our trust in, in flesh or the ideas of men. Because for the most part it will always lead to some kind of problem or even to destruction. The fact of the matter is that if we reject Him, we cut ourselves off from God and and we honestly sell ourselves into slavery. Now some Christians will say, well, wait a minute now, I'm a Christian now. I mean, God has saved me, God has, God has forgiven me, God has given me a new life and a new heart. And, and you know, so I, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm alright, I can I do whatever I want. Well, are you sure? Are you sure that every morning that you get up, you have gone before the Lord and you've trusted Him for the day that you're going to live? Are you sure? See, God's going to be there if you trust Him. God's going to be there if you abide in Him and abide with Him. He'll abide with you. And He'll be your strength and no matter what you're, going to, what you're going to face and what you're going to deal with. Just remember that God doesn't sell us into slavery. That's what the criticism was toward God. That's what they were blaming God. You sold us into slavery. No, no, no. Your sins put you into slavery. Do you get the picture here? And let's also remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans because now we need to deal with the New Testament understanding and deal with, with the heart of the matter even after the cross. Because in Romans 6 verse 15, Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. King James Version says, God forbid. 
Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? And he's speaking again to the church. He's speaking to believers in Jesus Christ. He says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin... Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which uh, you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Whoops, there it is. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We are bondservants of Jesus Christ. We are bondservants of Christ who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But I want to remind you, a couple of verses later in, in, in Romans 6.22, that Paul goes on to say, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the potential of falling back, of trusting in flesh, of trusting in other things, puts you in that position of being or becoming a slave once again to things that you ought not to be a slave of. Even as a believer in Jesus Christ. So getting back to Isaiah, God was calling out to His people trying to get their attention so that they would repent and return to Him, but they were refusing. And so the questioning continued. Notice, if you will, in verses 2 and 3 of our text. The Lord is saying to them, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? And then He makes this grand statement in in a question. He says, Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? In other words, are you saying that I'm not able to redeem you? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. And he's he's making it very clear. Let me me tell you something. I have the power to deliver. My arm is not shortened. My hand is not shortened. that That I cannot redeem you. And, and, and why is it that even today in the, in, the, in the body of Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ, some will theoretically believe that God is all-powerful, but not truly trust Him? We say He's powerful, but then we go off and we try to find other ways, um, other means, try to get some other ideas, other uh, attitudes and ideas that others may, might be able to give us, because we don't want to trust God. And in a lot of ways, are we saying, are you saying that I don't have the power to do it? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water and die of thirst. You know, this, this, is, this is pointing us all the way back to the parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Jordan River. And what God could do. And then he says in verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. But before we move on, the image 
or the imagery, I should say, of the divorce certificate. I didn't say a lot about it, but let me just say this. That the imagery of the divorce certificate and the selling into slavery needs to be addressed. Because basic to the imagery is the picture of the relationship between the Lord and Israel as a marriage. Now the people of Israel in exile, and of course at this point we're talking about Judah because everything is pointing to uh, Judah being taken into exile into Babylon. But the people of Israel in, ex- in, in exile are comparing themselves to a divorced wife. Or at least the children of a divorced wife being Zion. Forgotten and forsaken by God. This is what they're thinking. What God does is He challenges them to produce that certificate and they couldn't because He had never divorced them. He had never divorced them. He took them into covenant relationship into Himself. He took them into covenant relationship with Himself. That's what God did with His people. He had not divorced the southern kingdom of Judah. He had only permitted His unfaithful wife to suffer chastening at the hands of the Babylonians. Now, he would forgive her and receive her back again. But verse 2 shows us that the Lord had taken great pains to resume their relationship, but it was in vain. He came and he called, but no one answered, you see. That's why the questioning there. He came, but no one answered. He called. Well, he came and and no one stood up. He He called, but no one answered. Again, they refused to come. To him, They refuse to listen to him. And then they are upset with him when their lives are a mess and out of control. But isn't that the way it is with a lot of us today? We refuse to listen to him. We refuse to come to him. But we're upset with him because our lives are a mess. Folks, we need to take hold of what's being said here. They blame God. And thought that he couldn't save and he couldn't deliver them from their trouble that they were in. But they were wrong. Boy, were they wrong. Because when God says, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish sting, and so on and so forth. I clothe the heavens with blackness, make sackcloth their covering. The Lord is reminding them, and He's reminding us as well, that He is indeed in control, and what He says will come to pass. That is what is being said here. He is in control. We're looking at a world today that seems to be spinning completely out of control. If you watch all the world news and you see what's going on all over the world, you would just say, you know, where is God? He's there. We know that. Things that we see in the epicenter, in the Middle East, all of that thing has has been predicted, has been prophesied, and things are coming to pass. The Lord is coming soon. He said it would be this way in the last days. He said that we are to be careful. We are to be watching. In the last days, perilous times will come. I don't think of a time in all of the world that has been as perilous as it is today, as dangerous as it is today. But we know that God is in control. Or I hope we know that God is in control. God knows exactly what's taking place. God knows exactly what's happening. I, and I tell you this, we just got back from Israel last week, this last Saturday, and, and it, it, it's been 
we've been there, uh, oh gosh, a few times since 1994, so that's what, 17 years. And all that time, people have always said something. They've always said, aren't you afraid to go? Aren't you afraid to go? Why am I afraid? God's in control. I find myself safer over there sometimes than I am over here. Just in the traffic. Just in, as well in, in, the, uh, you know, in the crime that goes on. You hardly ever see any crimes over there. Well, of course, you've got soldiers with guns all around. Policemen with guns all around. But they're there to protect you. Around here, it's the, the bad guys that have all the guns. You see, you, you see what's happening? Yet even here, God's in control. And he, what he says will come to pass. He told them if they would listen to him, he would, he would bless them. They forsook him. And once again, their captivity was not because God lost control or, or didn't have the power to deliver them, but it was because of their sin. I want you to consider something a, a few chapters later in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. I know that most of you are familiar with this statement. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. You see how critical it is for us to understand the importance of sin? People don't want to hear about sin in the church anymore. Well, don't tell us about sin, you know, I mean, some people call it, you know, well, it's not sin that we need to deal with, we need to deal with low self-esteem. That's the problem with the church today. No, the problem is sin. The problem is you do what you want to do. You, you, you know, you, you, you meet God on, on your own terms and not on His terms. We need to get on His terms, on His page. The pages that we have before us in the Word of God is what we need to understand, what we need to know. And we need to live by these things so that we might honor Him because He's worthy of that praise and honor and glory. And, and not live our lives the way we want to live. And think that if we just do whatever we want, it's okay. Because, you know, God's going to forgive us anyway. See, these attitudes are not right. Y'all are very quiet. Judah did not go into captivity and exile because of God's weaknesses. Because God has no weaknesses. Judah did not go into captivity because of God's weakness, but because of their own sinfulness. I know I've repeated this a few times. I think it's trying to drive home a point. In verse 3, the picture is that of mourning because of their sin. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Do you, do you get the picture of what he's saying? Blackness. Sackcloth. Covering. It's a picture of mourning. It's a picture of grieving. Alan Redpath has written this. He said, oh, the sorrow in the heart of God. The pang, the pain, the agony, the suffering when His children sin. Sin in the lives of God's people clothes heaven with blackness and sackcloth. What a powerful statement. That's what sin does. But it is in the next section of this chapter that the Lord reveals His care and His concern for His people through the steadfast obedience of the Messiah, of Israel, the servant of the Lord, who we know today as Jesus. Isaiah 50, verse 4. 
with all that is said in verses 1 through 3 now, I hope that we understand what it says. For now in verse 4 it says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. This is Messiah now speaking. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious nor did I turn away. Now, four times in this passage, and by the way, that extends all the way to verse 9. Four times in this passage from verses 4 through 9. The servant Messiah uses the name, the Lord God. He says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear. The Lord God, Yahweh Adonai in the Hebrew, or Jehovah Adonai. But Yahweh Adonai can also be translated as Sovereign Lord. Some of your translations may say that. Sovereign Lord. And that would be translating it properly. And this title is not found, by the way, in the servant songs of Isaiah. By the way, this is a servant song here. We've already studied. But here is another song dealing with a servant of God. And this title is not found in any of those songs except here in chapter 50. For God to be called Sovereign Lord means that He is the owner of each member of the human family. Honestly, listen to this. Because it is speaking of His sovereignty over all things. Sovereignty means His rule over all things. So for God to be called Sovereign Lord means that He is the owner. He is the owner of each member of the family, of the human family. Why? Because He created man in His image. So He is the owner of each member of the human family and therefore He consequently claims the unrestricted obedience of all. He claims the obedience of all peoples. That's why some will be judged and others will not be judged eternally every knee shall bow it says in Philippians every tongue shall confess in heaven and earth and under the earth every tongue and every knee every knee shall bow every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord every not just those of, of the people who have come to know Christ every knee shall bow Every tongue shall confess. And so the emphasis here is on the servant Messiah's submission to the Lord God in every area of his life and service. The, the, the Messiah now is going to be the one who is, is going to come to redeem them, to, to rescue them, to deliver them. But it is looking at his submission to the Lord as the example. And notice what happens here. His mind, first of all, take note that his mind was submitted to the Lord God so that he could learn his word and his will. Look at verse 4 again. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. So his mind is submitted to the Lord God so that he could learn his word and his will. The reference to being awakened every morning points to his spending time with his Father. For we know that the Messiah is the Son of the living God. 
And he spends time with the Father, being directed and taught by Him. Listen, this is what we learned of Jesus early on. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, He, speaking of Jesus, went out and departed to a solitary place, and there He prayed. How many times do we see that throughout the Scriptures? You know, we only have to, we only have to see it once to know that He did it every day. We know we only have to see it once in the Scriptures, but we see it many times. That He went alone by Himself early in the morning before the sun would even come up. But He went to be alone with His Father. He spent time with His Father to be directed and to be taught by Him. That was the pattern of Jesus Christ's life. It is the pattern of, of the Lord's life. It is the example for us to let that be our pattern. Many people today want to know the secret to victorious Christian living. And so God raised up Christian bookstores. So we can spend so much time there looking for the right book to teach us how to be victorious in our Christian living. No. Here's the secret right here. Morning by morning. Do you see it? In verse 4. He awakens me morning by morning. Uh, let me ask you a question. Were, how many of you were awakened this morning? Or are you still asleep? No, nobody wants to play my, my game here? Uh, it's not a game, really. Uh, how many of you were awakened this morning? You opened your eyes. You went to sleep last night and you got up this morning. Half of you. <laughs> Man. All right. Some of you haven't gone to sleep yet, I think, or... Maybe you haven't awoken yet or awakened yet. Okay. I hope you understand what I'm trying to get at. Morning by morning, He awakens me. What do we do when we're awake? Are you spending that quality time at the beginning of the day being directed by God the Father, being taught by Him in His Word? We can all find that time. You know, we don't all of a sudden just get up and just do it. But maybe some of us do. Maybe we ought to. Because the Lord desires to converse with us. He desires to commune with us. And the question is this. The real question is, are we listening? Are we listening to what God is wanting to say to us? Because He wants to have fellowship with us. He truly wants to speak to us. And He wants us to speak to Him. And then in Isaiah 50 verse 5, it says, The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Jesus now, secondly, submits His will. His mind was submitted to the Lord God so He could learn His Word. And now He has submitted His will. Jesus willingly submitted Himself to do the Father's will. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Why does God open our ears? So that we might hear Him and do what He desires us to do for Him. You see, this particular text here implies something that most of us are familiar with. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you realize that we, we teach that a bondservant 
back in those times was one who would willingly give himself to his master. And the way that you knew a bondservant was that that bondservant would place his ear upon the doorpost of a house of his master. And the master would take an awl and pierce his ear against that doorpost. And, of course, a certain amount of blood probably came out. But once the hole was made, then a gold ring was placed in that ear. And the purpose of that was to signify that that person belonged, willingly belonged to his master, lovingly belonged to his master. And, and so when we hear that it says the Lord God has opened my ear, and I know I've made reference to this early on in our study of the book of Isaiah, because it's been brought up before. But the text is implying that Jesus himself made himself available to be a bond slave, giving his ear to the Father to be pierced, which shows us again that he willingly gave himself to the service of the Father willingly submitted himself to the will of his father. Jesus would say these words many times in his ministry. In John 5 verse 30, he said, I can do nothing, I can of myself do nothing. The reason why he says that is because he willingly submitted himself to the obedience of the father. So he says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He seeks to do the will of the Father, not his own will. In John six thirty-eight, the next chapter, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All in all, Jesus is giving us the example of our own lives of our own minds to be submitted to the Lord, of our own wills to be submitted unto God for service. But then when we come to verse 6 of Isaiah 50, a very critical statement is made. And the Messiah then says this, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus yielded his mind to the Lord God. He yielded his will to the Lord God. And in this particular verse, he yielded his body. He yielded his body to wicked men who mocked him, who whipped him, who spat on him, and then nailed him to a cross. You see, this is a prophetic statement given by the Messiah himself hundreds of years before Jesus took upon himself flesh. But he speaks of how he yielded himself and in time would give himself for the sins of men. In Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68, the fulfillment of this prophecy is given. 
Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. They were playing a game, blind man's bluff. The Gospel of Luke makes it a little more clear when it tells us that they put a covering over his head. And they beat him. Here it just says that they struck him with the palms of their hands saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Slapping him. Mocking him. But Jesus already knew that that would happen. He prophesied it himself. When he says, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. In Matthew 27, verse 26, it says, Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourged him. Struck him on the back. Thirty-nine times. Thirty-nine lashes. With a cat of nine tails. Scriptures tell us that he stayed silent through all of this. Which means that the more that, uh, that he remained silent and not cried out for mercy, the harder the beating was. In verses 30 and 31 of Matthew 27, again it says, They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put, on his, own, uh, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. About a week ago, maybe less, we were in an area called Antonio, the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, the Praetorium, as it was called, where they had actually found the very stones of the first century Praetorium, the very place where Jesus was beaten by the Roman soldiers. It really happened. And that place really exists. Even to this day. And you get a sense of why Jesus came. When you're there. And you realize that he took those beatings. Just for us. Because of our sin. Our disobedience. And so the servant Messiah did all of this, submitted his mind, his will, his body even. He did all of this by faith in the Lord God, in the sovereign Lord. And verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah 50 point us to that. Verse 7 says, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. In other words, he knows what his purpose is. He's going to keep his eyes on that purpose. And he's going to press on toward that purpose until it is accomplished. And he knows that in the end he will not be ashamed for what he does. He is near who justifies me. Verse 8. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. 
Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus was determined to do His Father's will, even if it meant going to the cross. His face was set like flint, it tells us here in verse 7. But in Luke 9, verse 51, the very same idea, the very same thought is given to us there when it says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for Him to be received up, that He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. He set His face to go to the cross. It was a lot. I mean, there's 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. It took us four years to study it not long ago. Chapter 9, He set His face like flint. There were a lot of things to happen until then. But, but early on in His earthly ministry, Jesus was determined to do the Father's will. In John 18, verses 10 and 11, we see some of that determination. The troops have come to take Jesus away. And Peter responds, albeit in the flesh. We're told in verse 10 that Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. I think he was trying to cut off his head. You know, when you're fighting somebody, you're not really going for the ear. Right? He's going for the head. He, just bad, he was a bad swordsman. He was a fisherman, you know. He couldn't do well with a sword. It was really just a little kind of a dagger type thing. But it says he drew it, he struck the high priest's servant, he cut off his ear, the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, notice what he says. This is important. He says, put your sword into the, the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup? which my Father has given me. Determined to go to the cross. Jesus knew that His Father would help Him. As a servant Messiah who would be falsely accused, He knew that His Father would vindicate Him and eventually put His accusers and His enemies to shame. But Jesus was the crowning example of one who lived by faith in the Sovereign Lord, His Father. You would almost have to say, well, why did Jesus have to live by faith? He's Jesus. Everything Jesus did was for our example. Folks, listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 5 for just a moment. Hebrews 5 verses 5 through 9. So also Christ did not glorify Himself to become high priest, but it was He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As He also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This does not mean that Jesus was at one time not perfect, and then he became perfect. It just says that he came into fulfillment and completion of his obedience by the things which he suffered. His life was a life showing us how to live by faith and trust in the sovereign Lord of the universe. His Father. He is the example. And as for... Uh, well, He trusted in His Father. And He depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. 
so that we might depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus need to be baptized? How many of you believe he needed to be baptized? He didn't need to be baptized, did he? He was Jesus. But what did Jesus tell John? You need to baptize me. Everything he did, he did so that we might follow him. Jesus was baptized to show us why he came. To be put into the water was to show us that he came to die. He came out of the water to show us that he was going to rise again. And those who believe in him would rise again on the last day. Jesus ate Shabbat dinners. He observed Passover. He did it all to show us how obedience is to be lived out. As for the enemies of Jesus, as for the enemies of Christ, consider once again verses 8 and 9 of our text. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat him up. Who's going to contend with Jesus and win? <laughs> no good answers there, right? Because no one can. Who can contend with Jesus and win? I think the answer is really clear. No one. Every enemy of Christ will be silenced in the end. Every enemy of Christ will be silenced. I think of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds and, uh, in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. It's not a good thing to be the enemy of Christ. There are a lot of enemies of Jesus today. It's our, it's our desire and it's our hope and it's, it's really our mission. It's our calling to let people know that if they don't know Jesus Christ... And if they don't trust in the Lord, that they don't believe, they don't believe that Jesus died for them and rose again. That they really are enemies of Christ. And one day we'll have to suffer. Eternal separation from God Almighty, the God who created them. We wouldn't want that for anyone. If that's eternity apart from God, Eternity in hell. Not a good end for this life. Jesus said, Come unto me all you who labor. He said that to his friends. He said that to his enemies. He said that to his family. He said it to all. Come unto me, all you who labor. 
and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because when we live apart from God, we live in unrest. There's no true peace. And man can't form or fashion a peace that is viable or even worthy of being established. Think about it. Everybody thought, you know, that after the First World War, which at the time was called the Great War, there would be a League of Nations and then man should just live in peace. Got worse. Second World War came. More destruction. More loss of life. More powers began to raise, raise up, arise up against good. And, and then six million Jews were killed, exterminated. because of hatred and demonic evil. And we thought that after that war, things will get better. It's only getting worse. Lastly, God pleads with His people <clears throat> to turn to Him. That we no longer walk in darkness, but come to His light and trust in the Lord. Look at verses 10 and 11 now. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all, who, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. You see, this is addressed specifically to the Jewish remnant, but, but the words have an application to God's people today. Faith ne will never go unrewarded. Folks, faith will never go unrewarded. We can always trust what God has promised. Even in the midst of trials, in the midst of troubles and persecutions, whatever it is, God's promises will always be kept. And we can trust in them. And so faith will always be rewarded. Trusting in the Lord will always be rewarded. Whether we see that here, we may not see it here in this life. There are some people today who have been suffering for Jesus Christ. Where they live, because where they live, you know, there's this hatred for Christianity. But they live in the joy of the Lord and they know that their reward isn't even here. It's going to be in the kingdom to come. And they look forward to that day. We get a little spoiled in this country because we want blessings here and now and we want blessings then too. But those who are unbelieving and who try to eliminate the darkness by lighting their own fires, in other words, following their own plans and their own schemes, they will eventually end up in sorrow and suffering. This is what God is saying there in the last verse. In obeying the Lord, you may find yourself in darkness, but do not fear. He will bring you the light that you need at just the right moment and just the right time. You'll never be in darkness as long as you trust in the Lord. No matter how dark this world is. We talked about that earlier on. No matter how weird this world gets, God is still in control. God will still give us light. God will still give us what we need. 
But rejecting God's plan for one's own charted course does not end in a pretty picture whatsoever. Let me give you two contrasting pictures as we close this study tonight. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21. I'll give you the bad news before the good news. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, that's all internet stuff, isn't it? Isn't it? That's all modern technology, isn't it? It's out there in front of us every day. And all liars, by the way. I remember somebody saying that they had invented the internet themselves. I think you all know what I'm talking about. I'm not committing him to his part in the lake of fire, but I'm just saying. They shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Going by your own plans, by your own schemes. Contrast that, if you will, with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Folks, Jesus doesn't have to die anymore. He already died once. He's already risen once. He's alive now. He's alive now for you and for me. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for you and He intercedes for me. Folks, it says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. There's the contrast. There's the second death, the burning with fire and brimstone, the lake of fire. Or there is salvation for those who wait, eagerly wait for Jesus Christ. And part of that eagerly waiting is that we do what He says. That we obey Him. That we live our lives as those who love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a contrast. Which do you choose? Which do you choose? Salvation and doing things God's way or judgment by doing things your way.